Hey there, it's Sarah with a quick message to share about this episode. This is a very special episode for three significant reasons. One, it's the first episode of 2024. Holy cow, I honestly can't believe we're here. Happy New Year, everyone. Second, it's our very first ever two-part interview. So start here and be sure to listen to the continuation after this. And third, it features one of the most special individuals in my life, my grandfather, Troy Chapman. My grandfather has continuously been one of my biggest cheerleaders. And as I grew older and learned more about his life and his work, he now plays the role of one of my biggest inspirations. Being able to capture and preserve his legacy in this small way means so much to me. And it means even more that you're here to listen. As I'm recording this on the very last day of 2023, I am so grateful to you for engaging, supporting, and championing the work of trailblazing in color. Thank you for all that you do and all that you are. And now let's start the episode. Welcome to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we talk to change makers and innovators focused on upending systems not designed by or for them to create a more inclusive and equitable world. I'm your host, Sarah Chapman Becerra. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Trailblazing in Color podcast, where we dive deep into the stories and experiences of remarkable individuals who are innovators in equity. Our guest today is a true embodiment of a lifetime public servant and a visionary leader whose impactful initiatives have shaped the landscape of affordable and accessible housing. Let me share with you a little more about Troy Chapman. Troy's first job after college was with the Friends Social Order Committee of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. While with the PYM, he worked with the Fellowship of Reconciliation and participated in organizing sit-ins under the leadership of civil rights leaders Bayard Rustin and Glenn Smiley. Troy was the acting director of the Office of Housing Programs of the Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington, D.C. He was appointed by the Ford and Carter administrations. As such, he was responsible for the regulations affecting the management of the nation's public and Native American housing. He put in place $200 million in HUD target programs, targeting 250 of the most problematic housing authorities in the country. This office was the chief architect of the Vietnam Relocation and Housing Program at the end of the Vietnam War. Trey also served as an attache at the U.S. State Department Embassy in New Delhi, India, and as chief operating officer and secretary-slash-treasurer of housing authorities in Montgomery County, Maryland, Wilmington, Delaware, and Chester County, Pennsylvania. Over the years, Troy has served as an international expert in the development and financing of affordable housing. As such, he provided affordable housing consulting services for the governments of Venezuela, U.S. Virgin Islands, South Africa, and the Dominican Republic, as well as the Ford Foundation, the National Partnership for Community Leadership, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Chester County, Pennsylvania Foundation, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Troy's initiatives have led to the development of thousands of affordable and cost-effective housing with a specific focus on seniors, veterans, educators, first responders, healthcare workers, and the working poor. 
In essence, Troy's aim was to extend support to all individuals who face challenges in realizing their dream of owning a home or finding comfortable residential solutions. Additionally, he introduced a community economic development and support service plan within meticulously planned settings. Troy's leadership represented his commitment to making the American and international housing programs a tangible reality for individuals from diverse walks of life. Today, we have the privilege of hearing directly from Troy Chapman, a man whose life story is a testament to the transformative power of public service, and a man I've affectionately called Granddad, the father of my dad, Troy Jr. Join us as we explore the lessons learned, the challenges overcome, and the wisdom gained over a lifetime devoted to making a positive impact. Granddad, welcome to Trailblazing in Color. Thank you. And congratulations on having such a wonderful program. Thank you for being here. I am so excited to hear more about your accomplishments, the work that you've done, and really the lessons you've learned from this lifetime of of wisdom and expertise. But I want to start back at the beginning. So I want to hear a little bit more and and share with our listeners early life. So let's start with when and where were you born? Nashville, Tennessee. My mother, believe it or not, had entered into an argument with my dad. So she went to visit her brother in Nashville, and that's where I was born. But, you know, the amazing thing is after my birth, I never heard my mother and father argue. So I don't. So they got it all out before you were yeah, born. So I, don't, <laughs> so I don't know what the issue was, but it meant that I was not born in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, where my family lived. Mm-hmm. And is that where you spent most of your upbringing? No, my grandmother, my father's family uh, was from Uniontown. And my father really lived all over. He was a, a college professor. He taught at university, the Kellard University of North Carolina, Howard University, and also in New Orleans. But this was during the years of the Depression. And at that point in time, many of those that were employed by the state weren't paid. So in order to uh, get paid, my father decided he had to go into another profession, not teaching. So he, wow, wow, that is, that's pretty, pretty shocking. So from there, well, actually, you were born in 1935. Right. And so from there, what profession did he move into? Well, back in those days, don't, don't forget, we're talking about a long time ago before well, even before your parents were born, there were only there were few professions that blacks could go into that would actually give them a living. They could be a minister, they could be a doctor, they could be a teacher, or they could join the religious profession and become a minister, or they could become an undertaker. Those were the professions that the, the black community would support you on, you know, if you died or if you needed a doctor or if you went to school. These were all black professions that were supported by the black community. So my father decided that he was going to become an undertaker. So he went back to school and, mm. and then relocated his business in York. 
Can you share a little bit about that story too, about how your parents came to York and attended a funeral? This was a long time ago. My father had attended a funeral in York. And for some reason, the person that had died didn't belong to a local church. And they had to have the funeral and the viewing and the service someplace. So it was held in a garage. And my father thought that there was enough black people who lived in York, the demographics worked, that they could support a funeral home. And so that's where he opened his. Um, It was a hard life. Back in those days, and even to the point where the funeral home closed under the ownership and management of my brother, it was a slim living. Hmm. It's challenging, and especially because there were so such limited professions that you really had to work with what you had mm-hmm. and the demographics of of the area. So you moved to York. Was this how old were you when this transition happened? Oh, uh, we moved to York when I was about three or four years old. And then you grew up in. A funeral home. What was that like? Well, I've never attended a funeral since then. Um, for me, it for most people it wasn't, but for me it was very traumatic. Uh, my story is I went to the movies and saw a movie called The Mommy. <laughs> and I was young enough that it scared the life out of me. And uh, I, I I would not pass that fear on anybody. I did not like living in a funeral home. I did not like being around dead people and dead bodies. And till this day, I've never attended another funeral, not even with members of my family. I just won't do it. And the other, and the mm. other reason why is that the, there's a certain smell that goes with it of both death as well as uh, flowers and that sort of thing. But my thing has always been that the last view you get of the person that raised you, that you were married to, or that was a child of yours, was in a coffin. And that's not the kind of memory that I wanted to live with, ever. Mm -hmm. What was your relationship like with your parents? My, my My parents never raised their voice to me, not once. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were loving. They were caring. I had every opportunity that that they could provide for me. I I really grew up in a loving home. My brother was a brother. (laughs) That's all you really (laughs) need to say about that. (laughs) Maybe. So I I feel that in our family, that that extension of love and caring and and warmth and just making sure everyone has what they need and, and feel taken care of. And even that extends to to the work of creating this space for for blacks to honor their loved ones, whether you know giving that access that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask about your your understanding and and your early memories and experience with social injustice and inequitable access. What was that like growing up? Well, I I think I was the average black child. Um, One of the things that bothered me, well, let's let's start with my parents. Um, My father went to Cornell University 
had a master's degree, taught at North Carolina State College for Negroes, and taught at Howard University. My mother had a doctorate degree in pharmacy. Uh, during my lifetime, she was never able to practice pharmacy, and my father was never able to work at another university, except going back to a black one. Um, when we moved to York uh, to open the funeral home, there was a little college called York Junior College. He applied for a position at York Junior College and was accepted until the day that he walked into the office to say, hi, here I am. And all of a sudden, mm. it, didn't, it didn't materialize. Uh, I was never able to get a job in York. Uh, the jobs were working as a bellhop at the local hotel or as a busboy in a restaurant, and that was it. Um, when I was a teenager, I tried to get a job as a uh, a newspaper delivery guy, you know, what you needed was a bicycle and a good arm. Uh, I couldn't even do that. Um, finally, it got it reached a point where I was in junior high school, ready to go into high school, and it was suggested that I go into uh, non-college preparatory courses so that, that, that I'd be a janitor anyway. And it was at that point, my parents made the decision that they were going to send me away to school. And where did you, what did you think of that decision? Well, How did you feel about it? And then what happened next? Well, I didn't know anything about the decision. I didn't know anything about boarding schools. Um, I was told I was going to go away to school, given some background in regard to it, told why. And uh, they went out and bought me some clothes for going away and delivered me to Palmer Memorial Institute in Sedalia, North Carolina. And there were about 70 or 80 of us. And I graduated from high school in Palmer and it was just a wonderful school. Um, it, it was all black, all boys and girls, uh, but uh, it was a wonderful school. And how did that set you up for what came after high school? Well, I, I made a, I got to know a lot of people. I began to learn about the system because people told stories about their relationship with their communities, their family. But when I left Palmer to go to college, I, I was, I, I was a happy camper. And then, so you graduated, graduated, and you went to college. Yeah, I went to Lincoln University, which is, of course, historical black uh, uh, university. And I was lucky in that my father, at that point in time, had become a member of the Democratic Party in York. My mother and my brother and all were, were, member, were members of the party. And as a result of his relationship with party members and the governor and the state senators, uh, I received a full scholarship to Lincoln University paid for by the state. Uh, that was the whole thing. Books uh, it never cost me a dime to go to go to Lincoln, except, you know, not for books, not for food, not for housing, not for tuition. It was all paid for by the mm -hmm. state of Pennsylvania. And did you attend for four years? Oh, yeah. 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 I graduated from Lincoln. I have a BA. BA. In history. In history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why did you choose history? Because it was easy. <laughs> it, was, it was easier than mathematics or chemistry or any of those subjects. It was easy.
All you had to do was read. And yeah, and history is interesting and we can learn a lot. And uh, you got through those four years. And then what happened? So you graduated, you got your BA in history, you've experienced a lot and you don't have any student debt, student loan debt. That's great. So where did you go next? Oh, uh, well, I went to, I moved to Philadelphia uh, to go to Temple University uh, to work on a master's degree. And I started working on the master's, but I never finished it. Uh, but while I was there, uh, I got a job with the Friends Social Order Committee uh, because I had made contacts with, with other people and had a relationship with friends. And my father-in-law was a, a birthright Quaker. So um, I got a job. The Well, my father-in-law said, it's about time you got a job. <laughs> you know. Uh, I had a young child at that point in time and needed to make some money. So um, I got a job working for the Friends Social Order Committee of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It's still there. They have a big meeting house at 15th and Cherry Street in Philadelphia. And it's sort of like the home of the Quakers, period. Uh, you know, it's a uh, William Penn founded the state in Philadelphia. And so there's a relationship. Had you been exposed to the Quaker community much before you met Grandma? Oh, uh, not much, no. And so a, a new a new community, a new um, understanding of, of what that means. And also, you and my Grandma Dorothy got married in 1957, which was 10 years before Loving versus Virginia, 10 years before the anti- Totally, uh, totally illegal. Totally illegal. <laughs> but also, what was that like, being um, a mixed-race couple, being in the Quaker community, again, different? Again, it wasn't that different. We got married at a Quaker meeting. And in order to get married, you have to have the approval of the men of, of, of the meeting and of the Quaker community. Uh, when we got married, the meeting house was basically full. We had hundreds of friends. Uh, I, I was sort of adopted by the Quaker community and became a Quaker. It was, uh, it was, it was fine. Um, and we didn't experience the kind of segregation that you normally would because our friends, acquaintances, and family um, didn't do that. I mean, you were loved, you were respected, getting involved in a lot of arguments about philosophy, but beyond that, you were fine. So hmm. as a matter So you got a job. I got a job. As a matter <laughs> of fact, uh, I, I, it worked out to the point where at later life, not too many years ago, uh, I became the executive director of the American Friends Service Committee, uh, which is the organization which speaks for Quakers on the uh, in the Midwest and the West Coast. Uh, so basically, I became um, the responsible person for a, a lot of the um, uh, the social actions of the Religious Society of Friends. That's a big influence. How how long ago was that? Mm, that was just before I moved to Puerto Rico. So I really don't remember. I have to ask Cindy. <laughs> Cindy, well, yeah, Cindy's, we'll yeah, Cindy's my wife, for, for, for those of you who don't know. But uh, yes. I don't keep track of stuff like that. Yeah, she she knows all. She's got 
a steel trap memory, my Nana. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, so you've got a young child, you're newly married, you get this job, you're working in organizing sit-ins and, and working in a civil rights capacity. It, it seems like you're starting to engage in that mm-hmm. work. What was that like? Oh, it was it was great. In, in, in a way, it was sort of depressing. Well, let, let me put it this way. First, uh, I didn't work do that for the French Social Order Committee, uh, order at the AFSC. It was a Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, which was headed by Glenn Smalley and um, uh, Bayard Rustin. Uh, and basically, they were going around the country giving people uh, lessons in how to react nonviolently and philosophically and that sort of thing. So that's what I was doing. The first the first site that I went to was in New Bern, North Carolina. And I felt very bad because I went down there and there are all these kids in the church and I had to tell them how to react if there was violence, protest, violence coming out of the police force, um, name calling, you know, garbage throwing, all that sort of thing, how they should react to that. And then I couldn't stay. I was told I could not stay there. I had to leave uh, because my staying would become a political thing there that these people were being riled up by somebody coming in from out of state. Um, so I had to leave, and that didn't set very well with me. I knew I couldn't do it, but I sort of felt embarrassed. I had to tell these kids to go out, face all these bigots, get spit on and name called and hit, beat, and I couldn't be there with them. Hey, if you are enjoying the show, be sure you subscribe and join our community at trailblazingincolor.com, where we share resources, connect you with other amazing trailblazers in our trailblazer circles, and amplify our collective power. Hope we see you there. Okay, back to the show. That's really hard. And I, I even I have heard about these types of trainings like you go to the National Civil Rights Museum and you see that brought to life and here you are in the trenches helping them to understand that nonviolent communication when it's completely unfair and it's very dangerous for them so feeling feeling a little bit powerless or at least doing what you can but not being able to see it through that must that yeah. must have been so frustrating and this was in the early 60s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how did that work continue? How long were you there for? And then what did you do next? Oh, uh, I was there for, I don't, I don't know how long. I was there long enough to, to apply as a uh, conscious objector, uh, which was kind of interesting because back in those days, you were being um, uh, drafted. And my draft number, neighbor, name, number came up. And... Um, I said, no, I'm a conscientious objector. I'm a Quaker. And he looked at me and said, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we see that coming. So uh, you go through the process. And finally, the end of that process is uh, you have a, a Department of Justice hearing, okay? Uh, 
So the hearing for me was with a guy from the Department of Justice uh, in Harrisburg. So I had to go from Philadelphia to Harrisburg. So a group of us got in a Volkswagen camper and drove to Harrisburg. And the idea was that I had to go in and, and convince this guy that even though I was black, I was a Quaker. And uh, that was rather traumatic. Um, you know, we didn't know what was happening. Uh, so I walked in and the guy said, hi, how are you? And I said, yeah, um, that's just who I am. He said, you're a Quaker? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're a pacifist. And I said, yeah. He said, good for you. He was black. <laughs> well, that's fortunate. <laughs> so the whole thing took about five minutes. Uh, the stress and anxiety leading up on that drive, I can only imagine. What were you afraid of as as you were heading to Harrisburg? Well, normally the people that that had that that did the hearings were white. Many of them were racist. Um, the, the the possibility that I would uh, be turned down uh, on some fluky basis was huge. And the stop and for me to walk in to a Justice Department hearing, and one of the few black men who were holding those hearings was the guy that I had to convince of, of who I was. Well, that was a very fortunate day. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am very glad and grateful that it worked out in your favor so you didn't have to go. And so going through that experience and then coming, coming into your next role, or where, where did you go from PYM, or where did you go from that work? organizing Well, work. basically working for the Friends Social Order Committee involved a whole lot of community organization. And mm -hmm. at that point in time, uh, the Redevelopment Authority needed someone. So I went to work for the Redevelopment Authority doing community organizing. And I was fortunate then that I was the first community organizer and came up with the idea of putting together a, a small community center. And there were a lot of vacant houses there. So I asked if I could have one of the vacant houses. Uh, I got it and they fixed it up for me. And the University of Penn State um, came in and began to teach classes. So we had a whole thing going there. We were providing people with meals. Uh, Penn State was talking to them about nutrition. Uh, we put together a thing that uh, helped people to refinish furniture if they had to leave. Uh, so it became quite the thing. And when I left there, uh, I went to work. Uh, I, I, I went to uh, work for the for the State Department and became a deputy director to Peace Corps in India, uh, which was wasn't that good. Uh, the Peace Corps took care of me. But I had to go through a whole lot of stuff first. The guy that I was working for in India was a bully and a bigot. Uh, so mm -hmm. I left India and uh, some members of the Peace Corps hierarchy in, in uh, Washington knew that there was a housing authority in Montgomery County, Maryland, that needed an executive director. And they suggested that maybe that's what I should do. And so they talked to the board of directors, and I became uh, director of the local housing authority. Had there been a black director of the housing authority before? No, it was a new housing authority. <laughs> I, was a, ah. I was the first executive director. But yeah, there were, were yeah, the most housing authorities had black, black executive directors. It's one of the few jobs you could get because they were basically 
black public housing communities. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's true today. Uh, the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development today is a black woman. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows who she is. And nobody knows what her name is. But that's where black people generally end up, or Hispanic. Mm. And that's that's positive to hear because not always do we see the the people representative and leadership that look or have the experiences of the populations they serve. Like we see it a lot in the nonprofit sector where there's a lack of representation on the leadership side in terms of that connected experience. But so. you're jumping to a conclusion. You're jumping to, to the oh. conclusion that the Secretary Same. of the Department of Housing and Urban Development knows something about housing and urban development. Mm. That's true. <laughs> Are you disputing that fact? Tell me the name of the person who is head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development today, Secretary. I'm going to have to look that up. Probably not. Unless probably you can Probably 99% of the listeners wouldn't be able to tell you either. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us? No. <laughs> you could have, just not today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's talk about the that that role in was it Montgomery in Maryland, Montgomery County, Montgomery County, Maryland. And believe it or not, in Maryland, there was a huge article uh, about the Montgomery County Housing Authority and the New York Times about two or three weeks ago, stating that it was one of the best housing authorities in the country. Uh, the housing was really great that the only people thing that people argued about was calling it public housing because it really wasn't. Um, it was it was really interesting. Uh, I got to do a lot uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, with the housing authority. Uh, I brought several buildings that were going bankrupt. And the first one I brought had a swimming pool. So we had an elderly facility and one of the few public housing uh, projects in the country uh, that wasn't built for, for low-income housing, but was built to house people. And it had a swimming pool and an exercise facility. It was just beautiful. And we did that. We did a lot of that. Uh, we probably did about 20 or 30 buildings like that. And as a result, of that, I went to buy a, a another project, and it was in a community that didn't want low-income housing, and it went off the wall. And the, the senator from Mississippi—I forget his name now—opposed it. Now I'm in Delaware, and you have a guy from Mississippi who's opposing it, and we decided that I would have to find another job, and I did. I went from there. Um, well, before I, before I leave that, one of the things that really helped that I was really proud of is that we passed a regulation uh, in uh, Montgomery County that anybody, any developer that came in that wanted to build housing, 20% uh, of those units had to be affordable, had to be public housing. So if you were a developer that came in and, and wanted to build 100 units, um, you had 20 of those units had to be priced so that they could be sold or rented to people who had need. And that was a national program, which really got to be pretty good. Um, 
I got recruited by the city of Wilmington, Delaware. And the reason why I got recruited by the city of Wilmington, Delaware was because the DuPont Corporation uh, had heard what was going on in Montgomery County and asked if I would come there uh, to help them achieve the same thing. And I was sort of at my wit's end in Montgomery County and they wanted me to move on. So I did, I went to uh, Delaware um, which was really cool. I, I was treated well by the DuPont Corporation. They were building a new office building, um, gave me offices for the housing authority on the top floor of their new building. Um, it, was, it was a wonderful place. And, um, they put money into it, uh, had a wonderful relationship with the mayor, who was Hal Haskell. Um, Hal's family uh, was the owner of Wawa, uh, the Wawa stores that sell stuff, gasoline. And uh, so we did very well in Wilmington. And uh, I never wanted for anything, got everything I needed from HUD and ran a, a, a really great housing authority. And that moved me on to my next job. Uh, the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development was on a tour, came to Wilmington, uh, saw what we were doing there and asked me if I would come to Washington. And uh, I got appointed to run the, the Office of um, uh, Housing Development at HUD, uh, which was responsible for the regulations that, that, that affected all public housing and Native American housing uh, by uh, Jimmy Carter and others. And... Oh, you did a lot of big things there. So now you're at a national scale. Yeah. Your impact's at a national scale and your efforts are. How? What are some of the things you're most proud of in your work there at HUD? Oh, we did a lot of stuff. Uh, the Section 8 program, which is a program which provides uh, monetary assistance to those who need it in place of public housing, was just coming out. We were taking a good look at housing authorities that were really having problems. Uh, there, there were huge housing authorities that just couldn't operate anymore. You had crimes going on. You had drug drugs being sold. Uh, you had people being robbed, killed. Uh, it was a slum of a slum. So we provided dollars to those housing authorities to help them put into place the kind of staffing and social services that we thought might help turn those developments around. Uh, we also, for the first time, allowed housing authorities to demolish large, uh, huge public housing projects and provided a rental subsidy uh, to those families that had to move. What was the purpose of the demolition? Um, well, you had huge public housing projects like uh, in New York, uh, one in Chicago, and I don't remember the name of it right now, which was famous. You had these huge public housing complexes that were basically racist and that they were all black. Back when public housing first happened, I'm having a senior moment. I'm trying to think of the woman in Chicago uh, who was a social worker. It'll come to me in a minute. But um, she came up with the idea that public housing could be built 
and could service community, provided you provided this kind of social services that went with it. In other words, you could build huge buildings, but you had to help people get jobs. You had to provide them with counseling. You had to provide them with all sorts of services. And everybody said, yeah, we can build these houses and it's inexpensive now because, you know, we can put them up 20 stories and we can put a thousand people in one building with two elevators, you know, and, and it would work out because we're going to provide them with counseling and job counseling and children's programs and all sorts of stuff. Their life would be a wonderful place. We built the buildings and the other part never happened. Hmm. So when I came along, you had these huge projects like in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, that were pretty terrible. And there wasn't anything we could do to save it. So what, what mm. we came up with was this program, which was called Section 8 then, which meant that uh, we could relocate people out of those buildings, give them a subsidy, which would allow them to go out and uh, rent a house. Of course, they didn't go out and rent a house. We had the housing authority staff do that in conjunction with them. And then we could tear those facilities down. There was a big argument about that because the argument was that we were tearing these houses down. Yeah, as bad as they were, it was better than sleeping on the street. And that was true. But Section 8 did work. Uh, many of the people that lived in these, these buildings uh, were relocated were provided with decent housing, but because of the massive relocations that were taking place, that created other problems which still go on to this day. What are some of those challenges? Well, you, you take a, well, let me, let me give you an example here, for example. When I came to, well, when I came to, I was already here, but when, uh, when I assumed the responsibility for the Chester County Housing Authority, there was a huge project in a small town here called Coatesville. Uh, Coatesville had a steel mill, which provided, I would say, the majority of the jobs, which were labor intensive jobs. When the steel mill first opened, they also provided housing for their workers. So you had this huge, massive steel mill. You had hundreds of people working there. And the housing that was provided for those workers and the poor people who lived in Coatesville was public housing. Well, when I came, that, that one of the people who worked for me and I made responsible for that project went there to try to do something about the dope dealers that were working out of there. And they threw him off the roof of the building. I mean, that's how bad it was. So what do you do about something like that? You tear it down and you relocate the people. Well, mm -hmm. part of the problem is that the dollars that you use for relocation are limited by what the cost of housing is in that area. Because it's a federal program, you have a tendency to look at a three-bedroom house that costs less. For example, a three-bedroom unit right now, uh, if I wanted to rent it, it costs about $2,000, $2,300. But we only provide like $1,500, all right? So there's small communities that have that, that the housing market in those communities 
with have housing, three bedroom house, for example, or a three bedroom apartment that costs $1,500. Well, that area around here isn't Westchester, where that same unit's going to cost between 2,500 and 3,000. It's Coatesville. And so everybody moves to Coatesville. So now all of a sudden, you've taken these huge housing projects, you've given them Section 8 certificates, and the only place that they can find housing that, that meets the, the specifications or the amount of money they were willing to pay is in Coatesville. So you've created another problem. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So the majority of housing or a good amount of housing in Coatesville was that public housing. Relocations. Demolishing it. Yeah. And then relocating. But that's, would you call it a stipend? What did you, a certificate? Section 8 certificate. Actually, it's Section 8 stipend. It is a stipend. Stipend. Yeah. And that doesn't meet the market. It It meets the market cost in Coatesville. In Coatesville. Yeah. Not the market. But not. not in, in, and the same, you're in San Diego, right? Mm-hmm. I bet if you took a, a good look at where most of the Section 8 units are in San Diego, you would find that there are certain communities where many of those people have Section 8 certificates. Mm-hmm. And, that's because of the, yeah, and that's because of the pricing. Yeah, City Heights would be one of our, one of our examples of that high immigrant population, high, you know, service workers, mm-hmm. low, low income. And, and yeah, that is one of the, one of the places where there are not a lot of those types of neighborhoods and access within San Diego as, as much as we need mm-hmm. them. So yeah, I, I hear the challenges caused and, and so you're working through a lot of that in terms of, okay, how do we make this program scalable and accessible in the way that it was originally designed and intended. Yeah, that's what I, that's what, yeah, that's, that's what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and how long were you there with the Chester County Housing Authority? Oh, about maybe some, I don't remember, probably between five to 10 years. I, I don't really remember, but this was like 20 years ago. We're not, we don't need to check the facts. That's a perfectly (laughs) reasonable estimation. So about 20 years ago. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Trailblazing in Color podcast. If you found this conversation meaningful, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. You can also follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Trailblazing in Color. Season two of the podcast was produced in partnership with the team at Podcast Bestie. And our theme song was arranged by guitarist Troy Chapman. Thanks, Dad.